and welcome to the latest Science of Sport podcast. I'm your host, Matt Solomon, and today I'm delighted to be joined by James Morahan. So, Dr. James Morahan is a performance nutritionist with the English Football Association. He's also the Science of Sport research reviewer for nutrition, and he spent a number of years working in elite boxing. And it's that last particular one that, of course, we're going to touch on today. And the reason I think James is going to be fantastic to discuss this today is because he's just released a five-year case study looking at making weight in elite boxing. So without further ado, it's time to welcome James onto the show. So James, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. Hi Matt, how are we mate? I'm very good, I'm very good. It's, uh, it's nice to have a repeat offender on. So uh, we've only got one or two people on so far. We've uh, come for a second time. So uh, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, hopefully people enjoy it and um, they don't get too bored, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, you're not, you're not discussing the same stuff every time, so uh, I'm sure they won't be. Uh, for those who don't know who you are, can, we give us, uh, can you give us a quick introduction as to who you are and uh, what you've been up to until now? Yeah, so my name's James Morhen. I am a recent PhD graduate from Liverpool John Moores University. Um, so I did my PhD up in the northwest of England. Um, and also did my undergraduate in sport and exercise science and masters in sports physiology um, up at LJMU as well. Um, so spent kind of nine years in Liverpool, really uh, studying and, and working with professional athletes from rugby players, uh, football, a little bit of combat sport and uh, weight making. And then my kind of first uh, full-time employment I guess post PhD was with um, the FA so England football and I've been there now for approaching three years actually in August um, and and that role really is is all to do with looking after the fueling and recovery strategies for our international players um, and in the first two years that was across the men's and the women's pathway um, and then now I lead with the the senior women team and the women's pathway. So we've got quite an important few months coming up with our um, kind of lionesses going into the Team GB squad and, and over to Japan for the Olympics. So it's all exciting times at the moment. Absolutely excellent, mate. And just a quick one on the men's team. Are we going to win the Euros? Yes. <laughs> Said with absolute confidence. Very good. <laughs> yeah. Um, so in terms of uh, what we're here to discuss today, we're going to discuss uh, making a weight for a fight, right? So uh, first things first, uh, what are the key goals then when you are cutting for a fight? Yeah, so just a bit of context behind this so people kind of know where I'm coming from with this. I was fortunate when I was working in or studying at Liverpool John Moores to work alongside Professor James Morton with um, Rocky Fielding, who's a super middleweight fighter. Um, we spent five years working together and I now help and support Chris Binham Smith, who's actually just a good friend of mine from back in the day. So that's that's where kind of my my work in combat sport um, comes from. Um, but in terms of like the the actual cutting for a fight, I would probably say it's broken down into two or three parts, really. Um, I think the first part is almost like a traditional preseason from team sport athletes, but in, in the fighting world, that preseason would represent that first stage of the camp. So that body composition manipulation that fighters are able to do gradually over time as weeks kind of stack on to, to one another. So, and, and the best way really to do that is, is to align the nutritional intake 
very tightly with the the training demands and the energy expenditures that the fighters will go through on a day-to-day basis so as an example a single training day versus a triple training day the nutritional intake should look different on that day and playing around with the macronutrients to elicit a drop in fat mass and where possible trying to maintain lean mass as the camp progresses I think then once you've progressed through that pre-season phase so to speak and you've you've done the gradual manipulation of body composition you can then enter almost the start of the season which in the the combat sport world is is almost like that that fight week um where ideally you want to present um a an individual that is very well nourished and they are very well hydrated so there's been no sign of you know r- ridiculous restricted eating and likewise there's been no sign of massive dehydrations in that final period before they're they're due to make the weight and normally that that window of opportunity i guess is around five to seven days before making the weight um and then the goal really during that weight cut is to yes you're you're going to go through a period of uh, acute weight loss but it's to do it in a planned and strategic way following the evidence-based practice and, and the evidence that's available for us all to read. Um, and, and ideally present the fighter on the morning of weighing um, either on the weight or just with a couple of kilos to, to you know, sweat out on the morning of weighing so that he can, um, the final element of weight, I guess, that he would lose or she would lose would be that water coming out from either active or passive sweating they make the weight normally a traditional weigh-in is around i guess midday 12 o'clock one o'clock and then you would then obviously replenish the fluid and, and the energy back into the body so really the the key goals there across that whole period would be manipulate body composition over time and do it gradually to give them the best opportunity to to get to the weight they need to get to that final acute weight loss we want to do planned and strategic with minimizing the amount of water that has to come out in the final 12 hour period really and then there there should be a, a strategic and planned refeed and, and rehydration strategy so like all of this sounds excellent in terms of science in terms of the, the practice you're putting into but why then would you go about doing all of this right so obviously uh with a with a 10 year old kid you're not going to do this like why why are you doing this with elite fighters um i think if i had my choice i i probably wouldn't want a fighter to do it really if if i'm honest because um yeah uh, yeah i guess if you look at fighters like mayweather when he was obviously active and in his in his prime and canelo you know, these these are fighters that tend to hover around the the weight that they're fighting at. Um, but the the reason that boxers like to cut weight really is because they feel that it certainly for the taller boxers that can go quite light um, and and make a weight that is really below where they should be for their height. They feel that that is an advantage in the ring because it um, it gives them the height and it gives them a reach advantage and also when fighters um, replenish and, and put the weight back on after a weigh-in, again, they feel like that gives them an, an advantage in the ring because they're sometimes they can be heavier than their smaller opponent. So I guess that's why the fighters would do it. Um, does that translate into a more successful or, or a higher chance of a successful outcome in a fight? N- no, not necessarily. And there is some research that 
shows that there's actually no correlation between the amount of weight kind of cut and put back on to the success of the the competitive bout. So it's an interesting one, really, because I think the tradition and the culture of the sport is that fighters have always had to make weight, whereas actually you could argue that some of the better fighters in the world are, are those that hover in and around their um, their weight that they're actually fighting at. And it's it's a really interesting question that you raise as well, because there's been some recent uh, literature talking about the the knock-on effect of weight cycling in athletes and in individuals and then the the detrimental effect to later life obesity and cardiometabolic disease and and in a in two sentences what what they're basically saying is that those athletes that cycle with their weight through their career unfortunately when they retire the likelihood is that they will begin to accumulate fat mass at a greater rate than someone that didn't uh, cycle their weight during their career and and in the paper's quite a good one. I'll link you into it. But it talks about this colossal fattening that every time you you weight cycle and you fluctuate up and down with your weight, your your body accumulates fat mass at a greater rate than it normally would. So really, if there's a boxer listen to this, you're probably better sticking in and around your fight weight, you know, all year round and for the most of your career, to be honest. Um but yeah, you know, I I also know fighters that it actually enjoy the weight cut and and they like to do it because it gives them that mental toughness. I think that's the super interesting, and I want to very quickly uh, touch on a couple more of the the disadvantages. Then, so the, the advantages are clear, right? Um, it could potentially give you uh, an in, an advantage over your opponent if you can effectively trick the system into believing that you're lighter than the fighting weight which you actually fight at. Um, but what then are the further disadvantages? So obviously it's quite a big stress on the body as well, right? Correct. Yeah. And and I think that's probably the biggest thing, Matt, that um, you, you've obviously got a, a, an emotional stress of cutting weight and cutting food out of the diet because you, you need to go into a catabolic state really. And you need to, drop fat mass and majority of the time fighters would also drop lean mass because they're just not consuming enough calories to maintain it so there's that there's that emotional and mental toughness of being hungry and training quite a lot and not giving your body enough fuel to kind of um curb the hunger i guess and the, and the you know the cravings in the evening so there's that side of it there's the social and the, the family side of it when you know a lot of fighters have got partners or they've got young family and you can't sit there or you can sit there at meal times and be with the family but it makes it even tougher to to stick to the nutritional strategy that you need to um and then unfortunately i would probably say there's there's more fighters that um are out there that probably do it in, in a wrong way and and so what i mean by that then that the emotional and physical stress that you're putting on the body in the final seven to 10 days, if you're not near the weight that you should be, then the panic sets in and combat sport athletes look for quick and um, sometimes dangerous ways to try and get that weight off. And, you know, it, it isn't good for the body. Let's, let's be honest, piling diuretics into the body and sitting in a sauna for 10 hours to try and get six kilos out of the body. It's not safe and it's not recommended 
um, for, for a fighter to do that. But the some fighters will go down that route because they haven't done it properly. They haven't done it over time. So again, I don't think that stress on the body is is good for anyone. And then the other thing is that in 12 hours time, if you were lucky to get on the scale and, and be at the weight you needed to, yeah, 12 hours or 24 hours time, you're in the ring and you've got someone opposite you wanting to smash two bells out of your brain. And having gone through that cut in a, in a drastic way or on, in, you know, not a good way, is that then a good position to be presenting yourself into a ring when you've got 30 minutes or more of, of someone trying to knock you out? Um, and, and that sometimes is the concern for dieticians, nutritionists who work with um, with boxers that might not be doing it correctly uh, previously in their career. And I think we have a, an element of due diligence and, and care for our fighters to make sure they are doing it properly. I think that's excellent advice. And just one more question before we start to move on to some details. Um, who do you then think uh, should be cutting for a fight, right? Like I made an example earlier, which is ridiculous of a 10-year-old cutting for a fight. Um, do you think amateur athletes should be cutting for fights? Uh, is it strictly for the professionals? How do you view that? Um, yeah, I think it's all, all on an individual basis, if I'm honest, Matt. Um, I, I think you have to perform some form of baseline testing. You know, if you're an amateur, and this probably lends on to its in, into the next question, if I'm honest, mate, because it's a point that I put in there around what would we do in, in the preceding or the weeks preceding a fight? And, and one thing that I would always do is some form of baseline testing. So if you are an amateur athlete and you don't have access to um, the, the expensive labs and, and the, the money isn't there, then at least trying to track and monitor your body weight over time would be a good tool for you to, to keep an eye on, really, to make sure that you're not in a ridiculous or sitting at a ridiculous weight and you've got only two weeks to make the weight and you've got 10 kilos to lose, for example, I think that would just be a silly, um, a silly approach to have. So it's, yeah, individual to answer your question bluntly. Um, I, I think if you're an amateur athlete and you can safely and strategically drop five and six kilos or eight kilos because you've got the weight to come off, then yeah, you, you know, you might want to, manipulate your body composition for the better and fight in the um in the division below um but likewise and, and similar for a pro really there are some professionals that could probably fight in in the weight division below but they've got a body composition that is a little bit lazy and sluggish and so they they have to fight in the weight above um so i, I, I do think it's individual mate Ah, all good, all good. And you've, you've led us nicely on to the next question as well. So, uh, yeah, you kind of asked it yourself already, but I'll, I'll do it again just to be sure. Um, what is then your role uh, as a dietitian in the weeks preceding a fight? Like what specifically do you start to do? <clears throat> yeah, so for me personally, uh, where possible, and I, I always think it is possible, you've just got to speak to the right people and use your contacts in the industry but I would do baseline testing at the very beginning of a camp. So a, a good example of Chris Billum Smith now is that we've through a contact and a, a link within the industry. I've got him into a university and we've done a, a DEXA scan 
and we've done a baseline resting metabolic rate assessment. Now, there was the opportunity to also do some force velocity testing um, at, at kind of the start of the camp, but um, because of logistics and, and timing, we decided not to do that. And for me, it was more important to see what his beginning of camp body composition looked like and also his RMR. So we, we did that, and, and that was through COVID restrictions, but you know we were able to do it contacting the right people and then off of that baseline testing I would then begin to track his body weight over time so whether that's six weeks or eight weeks I, I like to do two body weight checks a week um, I don't feel the, the need to do every single day when we're this far out of a fight but as we approach that final 30 day period that's probably where I'll start going every single day just to make sure he's he's where I want him to be um, and then from the, the DEXA and the RMR and then sitting down with Chris and, and discussing what his training plan looks like every single day, um, I would then uh, put together and, and design some nutritional plans and guidance and, and put a document together for Chris for him to follow over the next eight to ten weeks. Uh, the great thing with Chris is that he he's all over sports science, so He's um he's got kind of a whoop watch. He he's aware of how many calories he's burning every day from he's tracking it to the best of his ability. So that then feeds into me and then we can tweak some of the nutritional guidance where needed. Um and of course with that as well, we'd support him with the evidence-based supplements at the moment, kind of this far out of the the fight. What does he need to be having to keep him fit, healthy, and ultimately supplements that are gonna support the body composition change that I want with him. So we'd then roll through that really for the, the first kind of 80% of the camp, really. There might be a tweaking of um, carbohydrate content on certain days if needed to bring the weight down a little bit more. But apart from that, we'll just roll through before we then approach the kind of final seven-day period, I guess, and, and enter that kind of weight cut. So when when you're talking about uh, helping in this sense, that you, you do that as a freelancer, right? Like you come in and uh, you're hired to to work through that training camp. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I mean, with Chris, like I said, I I actually lived in Bournemouth for a summer when I was 21, um, and I, I met Chris then, and we've just remained friends ever since. So when I knew that he turned pro. I just said to him, look, if you ever need a hand, mate, with anything, just let me know. So there's there's no um, – th- this is more of a I'm helping a friend out kind of and, and looking looking after him as his performance nutritionist, but ultimately making sure that as a friend he he's in top condition as he enters the fight. Um, so I guess, yeah, it, it is freelance, but it's, it's basically having a f- check-in and a phone call with one of my mates. <laughs> makes life easier right um so yeah. when when you've then got into that final week uh you're looking at the last days leading up to the fight um what's then your athlete gonna do nutrition wise and then what happens after the weigh-in because i imagine that's uh, that's a huge importance as well yeah so the it's a really interesting period of the camp because you, yeah well, in, in my experience and, and touch woods, we we always enter that final seven days in and around the weight where we need them to be. Um, but then what we would begin to do is look at this acute weight loss manipulation over that five to seven days. Now, sometimes it could be as a, 
a queue of 72 hours because they're quite close to the weight already and we, we actually don't need to play around with anything. Um, and, and in the literature, Reed Reel's got a, a brilliant paper that talks about in that final kind of acute weight loss period, we only really want to be manipulating 5% of the body weight that the individual is at. Um, anything above that, it would not be uh, recommended. So with acute weight loss, then in, let's say it's that final 72 hours or 96 hours, we can begin to then play around with gut content manipulation. So that's, for example, moving the bowel preparation, you know, getting the bowels empty um, and, and getting rid of any food that may be sitting in there and, and causing a little bit of weight, to be honest. So the way that we can do that is we can begin to restrict the fiber within the diet um, and we can begin to utilize quite high GI um, carbohydrates just to, to, to get the movement going um, and, and keep that fiber restriction quite low. And then also you can begin to restrict actual food that's going in. So I'll give you an example. Um, let's say 50 grams of carbohydrates from a Lucozade bottle versus 50 grams of uh, carbohydrates from a baked potato. So the, the Lucozade is a lot lighter and it will be a lot quicker going through the body than the baked potato would because the, the heaviness of a baked potato versus the bottle of fluid. So you can still get the same uh, carbohydrate content, so to speak, but you're, you're manipulating where it's coming from now from a food versus a liquid. So you can manipulate the gut content um, and you can actually lose kind of one to two percent body mass in a day um, from the bowel preparation. So kind of moving that out and then also the fiber restriction, you can lose a, a little bit from that. And then once you've done that, you can then begin to manipulate body composition, um, sorry, body water manipulation. And depending on how far they are from their weighing weight, you might only have to do a, a small or moderate dehydration of, let's say, 2 to 3% body mass loss. So if you think about a, uh, to put this in perspective, like a 100 kilo rugby player in the summer, like rugby league now, some of my ex players at Warrington, they used to lose like 2.5 kilo in a game without even thinking about it and that was an 80 minute game so 2.5 percent body mass loss but i would never say that they were forcibly dehydrating it was just part of playing rugby so what you're trying to manipulate there is a, is a similar bandwidth of water coming out of the body um so that's that body water manipulation and then of course fluid restriction as well so if if fluid is coming out but we're not putting it back in then we'll have the the scale tipping in the right direction um, and then if you've manipulated carbohydrates and you've reduced carbs going in then you can also manipulate the amount of glycogen that is sitting within a muscle so we know that glycogen and water binds within the muscle and it, it obviously binds and, and has weight attached to it so what we're trying to do there is reduce the amount of glycogen that is sitting within the muscle and therefore the amount of glycogen that will bind to water within the, the muscle um, of course, that skeletal muscle. Um, so you can play around with like a number of things there. Um, and, you know, I've had Rocky on numerous occasions where he would lose kind of four kilos in, in the final 72, 96 hours without really doing anything too drastic. Um, just playing around with those different acute weight loss methods there. And then, of course, if you need to, you've you've got that final 
acute sweating method where you might need to pull off a, another kilo on the morning of a weigh-in by having a fighter put a sweatsuit on and go for a 20-minute run around the block. Um, and that's exactly what we did in Germany when Rocky won his world title. It was, okay, we need a kilo off 30-degree heat in Germany in July. Let's go for a 15-minute run and, and off it came. Uh, it makes it make, make it sound easy, right? Just uh, rock up in the morning <laughs> and uh, and go for a little jogging. It's all sorted. But I imagine there's a, there's a lot more to it than that as well. Um, how, much, how much time does that then cost uh, for for yourself, but also for the athlete? Because it seems like it's quite a large investment of of time and effort from everyone involved, right? Yeah, I think what I've learned over the years is that education is key. Um, so you know, Rocky because I had five years working with him, it was a nice period of time to subtly subconsciously educate him over, over that period of time so that yes, I was always there and I was, you know, I could hold him accountable to stuff, but he, he began to know and learn how to do it himself. Um, and, and just have me tweaking things and keeping an eye on it. Um, and, and I think that's where it's so important that you, you do do your baseline testing and you do run your numbers and you, and you check everything and you make sure that you're not just putting the finger in the sky and guessing with stuff. You know, it's very hard to produce a, a dietary plan for someone. If you don't really know what the current body composition looks like, you don't know what RMR looks like and you've got no idea how many calories they're burning or expending during a, a double training day it's difficult because you you're almost just making up numbers so that's why I, I genuinely believe that at the success of some of the case studies certainly that I've worked with have been doing those testings and and making sure that you are getting the numbers and, and you can hold yourself accountable to it um but yeah I think education for the fighter I think it's important that they understand what the the program or you know the project document that you've given them it's important that they understand what it is you're asking them to do um and that's where chris billam smith to be fair to him is, is is outstanding because you know if i if i'm saying to him look i think it's important that we kind of get you on some beta alanine at you know six to eight weeks out before the fight he'll ask me why you know why why beta alanine what's it do why is it important why do i need it is there any knock-on effects um, and it's nice to have a, an athlete question you on that because it's important that we do, do have the answers and we can and tell him the reason why. Um, so, yeah, it's not I wouldn't say it's easy because it isn't. But when when you f follow the literature and you do the reading and you do the testing and you've got a good relationship with your athlete and you educate them and, and you're, you're at the end of a phone for them, then, you know, it you can get through the camp in, in a very good position. Absolutely brilliant, mate. So uh, we want to ask you the most difficult question that we can imagine as well. So before we leave, what is the one thing that you see or do differently, which the rest of the world can learn from? Yeah, recently I've, um, I've started taking more of a bird's eye view of, of the situations that I either put myself in or find myself in. Um, I don't know. It's just maybe a bit of a reflection over the last 18 months of of everything that's been going on. But sometimes just zooming out and um, assessing the situation from above rather than being caught up in the here and now and, and in the rabbit light of the situation that you might be in sometimes. And that certainly allowed me to 
um, think about it from a, a more rational position rather than emotionally caught up in, in the situation. Um, I hope that makes sense. That was a bit of waffle. <laughs> no, absolutely, mate. I think it's nice to, to be able to get that kind of perspective sometimes that, yeah, we get caught up very much in the in the minutiae of, of everything in the world. And yeah, you, you really want to get that, that sets and reps sorted and that one thing needs to be done and that email needs to be read. And sometimes you just need to say, yeah, well, it, it, it's important, but sometimes it's less important. So I think that's it. Uh, that's, that's I think that's exactly it. I think uh, you've nailed it there. It's the perspective of, of the situation that we're all in, isn't it? And, you know, sitting here now having a discussion with you around weight cutting and, and combat sports and boxing, you know, it's, it's a privilege. Um, and, um, yeah, not getting caught up in, in all of the finer detail of, of the uh, of the world that some people do, and I think unfortunately it creates um, unneeded stress for people sometimes. <laughs> I think a lot of people can relate to that. That's uh, absolutely excellent stuff, mate. So James, massive thanks for your time today. It's been a pleasure. All good, no worries. And um, I'd just like to finish with a a little plug to um, the the um, we've done. I spoke about Rocky Fielding and obviously the, the five-year case study that we've done. And we've actually just recently published that in the International Journal of Sport, Nutrition and Exercise Metabolism. So if uh, people are interested to see what the body composition of Rocky looked like over five years and, and how he weight cycled over 11 different contests, then um, please yeah, do go and check that out. And um, I'll kind of link you up with the PDF as well. Cool. So that that will be uh, in the show notes, um, and you'll you'll be able to send us a link to that one. Yeah, hundred percent. Absolutely excellent, mate. So uh, be sure to check that one as well, because uh, I'm sure there's a lot of extra bonus content in there which we've not covered today. So really good stuff, mate. All good. Thanks for the invite. Thank you very much for coming. It's been an absolute pleasure. Cheers. Cheers, bye. 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 And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks to James for all of his hard work on today's podcast. I really appreciate it, and I'm sure you do at home too. Before you leave, I want to point you in the direction of our Coach Academy. And the Coach Academy is a series of mini lectures broken out into bite-sized chunks. Of particular interest after today's podcast are probably the lectures on nutrition for team sports and on carbohydrate periodization. So if you're interested, go and check out the Coach Academy and you can do that completely for free using the link in the show notes. So you can get a seven day free trial in just a few seconds time. And of course, if you have enjoyed today's podcast, be sure also to hit the subscribe button. And if you could do us a very quick favor and leave us a review, I would massively appreciate it as well. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks from me. I'm Matt Solomon for Science of Sport and I'll speak to you next week.